At that time, Ab said to Phil, the commander of the forces of Abraham, said, uh, of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me the country where you are living as an alien, the same kindness that I have shown to you. And Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Ab about the well of the water that Ab and his servants had seized. But Ab said, I do not know who has done this and who will not you will not tell me, and I have not heard about it only today. So Abraham bought sheep and cattle and gave them to Ab, and two men made a treaty. Abraham set forth seven ear lambs from the flock, and Ab asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ear lambs that you have set apart of them? And he replied, Accept the seven ear lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So the place was called Bathsheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Bathsheba, Ab and Phil, the commander of the forces, returned to the land of the Philistines, and Abraham planted a tamak tree there in Bathsheba, and they called the place the name of the Lord, the Eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. <coughs> I think Ab and Phil is much better than... Abimelech and Fickle. <laughs> I'm going to pray and uh, ask God to help us now before we take a, a closer look at this part of his word. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the immense privilege of being able to study your word together, to sit under it, to hear you speak to us through it. Please soften our hearts that we might respond in faith and obedience. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, uh, I've known of some pretty bad behaviour of Christians. I've seen Christians lie. I've seen Christians steal. I've seen them swear at each other. I've seen them demonise each other and poison their children against each other. I've known them to cheat on their taxes. I've known them to be abusive to their spouses. I've known them to leave their wives and their families for another woman. Some even saying it was what God wanted for them. I've seen Christians bully people. I've known Christian leaders to bully those that they serve. And then after outstaying their welcome, only stepping down after being paid off. I've known Christian leaders to be caught out in cheating on their wives, but then minimise their infidelity with the gift of the gab that God gave them. I've heard Christians abuse people as they get cut in on while driving on the road. I've seen them be triggered by some woke or conservative comment online and then slanderously let rip at whoever made the comment. I've seen them slag people off that they don't like, saying they hate them. I've heard them demonise anyone with a different sexual orientation. I've heard them denigrate their bosses, slag off their leaders, take advantage of convenient loopholes and uh, ethically grey pursuits. Pornography is rife amongst Christians. I've known many Christians who struggle with the sin of looking at pornography. Some don't even struggle anymore. 
and in the process support an industry that destroys literally millions of lives. And that's just the sins that we recognise as sinful. In the Christian church, it's rife with greed, with worldliness, with faithless anxiety, with gossip, with slander. Many, if not most, Christians are vain, discontented, proud, selfish, angry, bitter and judgmental. And so you wouldn't blame people in the world looking on and maybe with a particular hypocritical Christian in their mind just dismissing us all as a bad joke or raging against us as the real problem in the world. And who could blame them? Gandhi, the renowned Indian pacifist, he rejected Christianity famously saying, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. And who's to say how many others haven't similarly been turned off Jesus because of Christians, because of us? Last week I referred to a book with the catchy title Being the Bad Guys, which is written to Christians who are unfairly seen by the world as the bad guys, but what if we actually are? What would God say to this? Well, I think our passage today and the context in which it comes would point towards the fact that God graciously chooses to be with bad people, but that by his grace we'd expect those bad people to do better. So that's where we're going today. Point one, we see God is with Abraham. Uh, Point two, so that he looks to live at peace with his neighbours. And as such, point three, since God is with us in Jesus, we should live at peace with our neighbours too. So point one, God is with Abraham. As we've seen throughout these chapters in Genesis, but particularly here in chapter 21, God is really with Abraham. Uh, as we saw last week, uh, God gives Abraham a son uh, to Sarah, Isaac, the son that he promised to give years and years ago. And Isaac's a miracle son. Abraham and Sarah, they are way beyond naturally being able to have kids. He's a 100, she's 90, yet God gives them Isaac. And this is a big deal. It's a big deal for a couple of reasons. First, God kept his promise to the dot. And second, it means his other promises are looking more and more of a goer. Which promises are those? Well, back in chapter 12, God promises Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Through blessing him and making him into a great nation, God's plan, his promise, is that all people on earth will be blessed through him. But as we've seen up to this chapter, he's been more of a curse on people than a blessing. He's behaved appallingly, appallingly, uh, towards people like Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt, and then Abimelech, the king of Gerar. He deceived them both. He got Sarah to lie and say she was his sister, sister, not his wife. Uh, they end up unwittingly taking her into their harems, respective harems, 
uh, and then they suffer God's judgment for it. But Abraham's not even sorry about it. In chapter 20, he's even trying to justify it. Well, I wasn't totally lying. She, she kind of is my sister. No remorse, no care for his wife's safety or her reputation, but he's happy to take the riches that Abimelech gives him to smooth over the mess that he created by lying in the first place. He's a jerk. It's clearly not because he's a good guy that God's with him. It's entirely and utterly because God is good and gracious. Because God is faithful. God keeps his promises. And so although Abraham does not deserve it, God blesses him. Amazing. He gives him a son. He's with him. And even the pagan king, Abimelech, can see it. And we see that from verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now, swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are now, where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown to you. It's obvious to Abimelech that God's with Abraham. Uh, and he knows it. Uh, it can't be because Abraham's a good guy. Uh, he, he's known firsthand what Abraham's like. So while he comes to make a treaty with Abraham, you get the sense that he just doesn't quite trust him. You know, he says, swear to me before God that you won't deal falsely with me there in verse 23. Now, God is with Abraham, no doubt, even though the nations in Abimelech here have good reason to doubt his integrity. Still, God is with Abraham. There's a t-shirt that says, Jesus loves you, with the subtitle, Everyone else thinks you're a loser. And I reckon Abraham could uh, properly wear a version of this shirt. It'd just say, God loves you, everyone else thinks you're a loser. With everyone, at this stage, being Abimelech. God's with Abraham, he doesn't deserve it. But he'll still graciously uh, be with him. He's blessing him. And he gives him a son. And it seems that this particular thing, the son, Isaac, sinks in deep. God's grace in Isaac, it works on Abraham and it seems to work on him from the inside out. As God delights his heart, makes him laugh. Isaac, remember, his name being laughter, right? Makes him laugh at the surprising and delightful goodness of God's faithfulness such that it changes the way that he interacts with the nations around him changes him from interacting with them from a place of fear and then stuffing them around to wanting the best for them so as to live at peace with them. Which brings us to the second point. Because God is with Abraham, point two, Abraham works to live at peace with his neighbours. Abraham seems to shift from being afraid of these nations to instead wanting to make sure that they can trust him. Now, up to this point, the reason that he's given, you might remember, uh, the, the reason that he gave to them uh, for the way that he behaved and lied to them was because he was afraid. He was afraid of them. He was afraid they, they didn't fear God and so that they'd kill him to get his beautiful wife Sarah. But as God's blessed him 
And as Abimelech's clearly come around to at least respecting the God of Abraham, Abraham seems to change the way that he relates. He's clearly not afraid anymore. The shift in power uh, might have something to do with that, but rather than leverage that shift of power to get more for himself, Abraham goes out of his way to reassure Abimelech that he can be trusted. Abraham would have picked up that uh, uh, Abimelech didn't really trust him, but rather than get all offended and double down on his bad behaviour, and leverage his newfound power to get what he wants from Abimelech anyway. Instead, Abraham works to make it right with him. He works to restore trust, which seems to be what's going on next. Uh, Verse 25, as Abraham complains to Abimelech about a well that he built, that's rightfully his, but that Abimelech's uh, men have taken. And while Abimelech claims he doesn't know anything about this, Abraham, keen for Abimelech to trust him, makes an important gesture, which we read from verse 27. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you've set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven ewe lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. Abraham is keen not only to live at peace with Abimelech, but for Abimelech to trust him. So, although you'd assume Abimelech, seeing Abraham's rising to power, becoming more powerful, uh, and possibly their threat, that he'd be the one trying to sweeten the deal, sweeten the treaty that he's bringing, and and give gifts to Abraham. Instead, we see it's Abraham giving the gifts of sheep and cattle to Abimelech. And and more than this, he sets aside uh, seven extra seven ewe lambs, as a witness that he dug the well in question, as a witness that he's telling the truth, that Abimelech can trust him, that he wants Abimelech to trust him, and he wants to dwell in genuine peace with him, a peace based on his generosity and truthfulness, not fear and power, but a real peace. And this seems to work. Verse 31, we read, So that place was called Beersheba because... The two men swore an oath there. And then verse 32. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. And then verse 34. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Abimelech's justifiably wary of Abraham. So Abraham works to restore trust and establish a peace with him in generosity and truthfulness. And it works. Abraham stays in their land for a long time. It's not a piecemeal peace. It's a peace uh, driven by God's grace with generosity and truthfulness. It's a complete peace. Fun fact. Uh, The number seven features quite a bit in this passage. You may have picked it up. Abimelech and Abraham, they are named precisely seven times each. Abraham offers Abimelech seven ewe lambs. And the word that can mean both swear, or oath, and seven, uh, and which appears in the name Beersheba, that's used precisely seven times. Now, uh, the number seven is significant so far in the book of Genesis as the day that God rested from completing creation. So all these sevens in this passage, are they meant to give us a whiff of something completed? 
maybe a hint of some sacred rest. Because there seems to be something like that going on in this chapter. God's grace completing Abraham's faith as it moves to for him to live at peace, to be at rest with his neighbours in generosity and truthfulness. And as such, I reckon this, this shows us something of what maturing, wise faith looks like. As Proverbs chapter 16 uh, can tell us, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The wise person, the one who grows in their faith, like Abraham, uh, grows to make peace with their enemies. And, and this applies to all of us who know Jesus. Because in Jesus, God is wonderfully with us. Which brings us to point three. That since in Jesus God is with us, like Abraham, we'll grow to live at peace with our neighbours. Because the simple fact is, Jesus is the miracle son that Isaac is just a shadow of. Oh, he's the true son of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham that God promised would bring blessings to the nations. Blessings of more than a big family, more than a patch of dirt in the Middle East, but of eternal blessings in a heavenly dwelling with untold, vast, everlasting spiritual blessings with God that can never be taken away. And these blessings, they are ours in Jesus. He's not just the promised son of Abraham, but he's the son of God, the one through whom the universe was made and for whom we were made and in whom all our hopes and dreams find their ultimate fulfilment. Jesus is the goal of our existence. He's the goal of all of humanity. God himself come in the flesh for us so that we might know him and one day be with him in the flesh in glory forever. And this is ours in Jesus. God himself, now and forever. There's nothing more breathtaking or delightful or beautiful or wonderful than this, to know and to have God. And to know that this God has graciously given himself happily and joyfully to us and says to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so if this is the case, then we should let that, that God is with us in Jesus, profoundly with us in Jesus, we should let that sink deep into our hearts and let it change the way that we treat those around us to help us see that we don't need to live in fear of the world, of those out there and what they think of us, even when we've stuffed up And their distrust is justified because we know we're not the good guys. But we know a very good and gracious God who's been generous and faithful to us so that we might be generous and faithful to others in our efforts to live at peace with them. As the Apostle Paul says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. So because God is with us in Jesus, we're no longer of this world. We're of God. And so we're no longer to conform to the ways 
that this world works, repaying evil for evil, lashing out in fear or hiding our sin away in shame. Instead, we'll be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Uh, More than that, as much as we possibly can, we'll work to live at peace with everybody. Which I think means at least three things for us. Firstly, we'll be honest about our sinfulness. We'll own any part we might have played in making those in the world legitimately distrust us. And we'll look to turn from that behaviour. Which might not be pretty. When I was at art college many years ago, I lived in a share house with three fellow students and an older couple. The woman of that couple, though, she was a piece of work. Uh, She was loud, obnoxious and opinionated. She'd rant and rave around the house at all hours, sometimes punching holes in the wall, swearing at God. And to counter that, uh, my college mates and I, we'd make fun of them behind her back. But she wasn't stupid. She knew. And just before I moved out, I got the guilts and I sat down with her and I said that I was sorry for the way that I'd treated her. And her response was to look me in the eye and say, and so you should be. Call yourself a Christian. But she came around a little bit and ended up thanking me for owning my part. Now, things were far from perfect between us from then on, but unlike my college mates, who she wouldn't even look at, she at least talked to me. And that's got to be the first step in making peace with those in the world, right? They've got to want to talk to us. So let's be honest about our sinfulness, that we're not the good guys. And if needs be, own any part we might have played in their legitimate distrust of us. Fess up. Apologise. Seek forgiveness. That's the first thing for living at peace with our neighbours. The second thing is we'll be generous in our efforts towards people. We'll go over and above what's expected. We'll be known as the conflict resolution person, as the one that the two arguing parties turn to for support. We'll be known as the one who deflects the boss's praise or the teacher's praise to others. We'll be known as the one who helps friends or colleagues or fellow students or even enemies with their struggling workloads. We'll be known as the one who's slow to gossip, quick to point out other people's strengths. We'll be known as the one who constantly offers support and maybe to pray for those who are hurting. We'll be known as the one who shares meals and conversations with everyone. doesn't matter who they are, from the rich to the poor, from the powerful to the forgotten. We'll be known as the one who's as quick to go out for lunch with the gay couple as we are to hang around with our Christian mates. We'll be known to listen and care for lefties as much as righties on the political spectrum. We'll be known as the one who'll happily give up their time, energy and effort for the sake of others, we'll be generous in our efforts to live with people. That's the second thing, in living at peace with our neighbours. The third thing is we'll be truthful 
It's interesting that Abimelech, in trying to secure Abraham's commitment to his treaty, asked him to swear to God. Why? Because he couldn't trust him. Which must be why Jesus says, don't swear at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Jesus' assumption is that whatever we say, we'll do. That we can be trusted because we tell the truth all the time. Not just on special occasions, when we swear by something or someone important. Uh, that will be known as those who tell the truth all the time. Because it's as we're known as people who tell the truth, known as those who don't fudge on what we don't know, or what we think we know, just to win an argument, or score points, or weasel out of something, or excuse a mistake, or minimise something wrong, but who consistently tell the truth, even if it costs us. If we're known as this, people will trust us. I heard of someone the other day who was so concerned uh, to do the right thing, uh, after getting a good mark in a test, they went to their lecturer and confessed that they pretty much copied from uh, some of the answers straight from the textbook. Even though it was an open book test, they were allowed to do it. But they didn't feel it was right and they just wanted to make sure. To which the lecturer said something like, you're the first student I've had coming to ask for a lower mark. But I bet they won't forget them. Forget that they were concerned to do what's right. They were prepared to tell the truth, even if it cost them. If we're known to be like this, we'll make it much easier for others to live at peace with us because they won't be second-guessing everything that we say. And they'll believe us when we say, I've got your back, or I'll be there for you, or I'll help you out, or importantly, Jesus died for you. So three ways to live at peace with our neighbours, to own and confess our sin, to live generously towards our neighbours and to be truthful, always truthful with them. And we'll do these things to live at peace with our neighbours because in Jesus, God is with us. So in finishing off, we here at Gossip PC, we're on a mission to reach out to each other and to the world with Jesus. And what better way than what we've seen here in this passage? We've seen that God was with Abraham and as God's grace sunk in, he looks to live at peace with his neighbours. And so because in Jesus, God is profoundly with us, like Abraham then, we'll work to reach out, reach out to our community and those in the world by living at peace with them as much as we can. And I'm going to pray to that end now. Father God, please forgive us for the sinful ways that we've lived. For those ways that have put others off you. For those hidden and secret ways that poison our relationships with you and with others. Please remind us of the incredible wonder and grace of Jesus. Of knowing that you are with us even though we're bad, that your love for us is unwavering and vast and strong in Jesus. And in the light of this, please help us not to live in fear, fear of those in the world, 
but in love for you. By being quick to fess up to any rubbish behaviour, to go over and above serving people and loving them, and to be known as people who tell the truth always. In these ways, please help us to live at peace with those in the world, with our neighbours, and so commend you and your goodness in Jesus to them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.